Hello, and welcome to A Glimpse of Hell, a laid-back podcast discussing the scum of humanity that you love to hate. You can hear all our content on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for juicy comments and gossip. Please give us a nice review. Should you not, your safety cannot be guaranteed. Hello everyone and welcome to A Glimpse of Hell uh, with your, well, I wouldn't say I'm the host of this show. I think we dual host this. I host our other podcast. Well, yeah, yeah we uh, co-host and yeah. uh, if we ever have a disagreement over um, who has that <laughs> title, I guess we're probably better informed than some of how to get rid of the evidence. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Welcome to A Glimpse of Hell with Rachel and Matt when we record down here in Melbourne, Australia. We, um, we are two good friends uh, who conversate about various true crimes of history and we do love historic. I don't think love is the right word, but we are specifically interested in historical true crime. We see the intellectual merit. You, we do. And um, our other podcast, When Movies Were Good, is about classic films. So it was, it was um, we would often have these very long-winded discussions before we started recording that about true crime. So we thought, well, why not? And welcome to A Glimpse of Hell. <laughs> We are discussing a very sad case today, and all the cases um, that we discuss are sad, horrible, and of course we always send our love and compassion out to the people that were affected by these, because they are the important people in this. And in this case, we are speaking about a very horrible creature in history by the name of Beulah George, Georgia, as she was known, Tan, and she lived from July 18th, 1891 to September the 15th, 1950. And so she was a, for lack of a better term, she was a criminal. She was an American child trafficker and she operated an organization by the name of the Tennessee Children's Home Society, which sounds great, doesn't it, Matt? But it was anything but. Well, I think we've uh, cottoned on well that most uh, major institutions that were responsible for the care of children in um past uh, century or even a, just a few decades ago were often very uh, poor management in um uh, their standards and often leads to um uh, an abusive um uh, intellectual environment and that's uh, when they're not being neglected medically. Yeah, definitely. So essentially. She had, um, she was, yeah, she trafficked in children that she stole, essentially. So she had this adoption agency in Memphis, Tennessee. She had, she was, she came from a social working background and for someone like her who was unmarried, didn't want to be married, was in one of those sort of, I guess Matt and I were discussing this before, I guess you could call it a Boston marriage with another lady. So two well-to-do ladies lived together. They had a personal relationship. Which um, was really just an old-fashioned term for saying two rich ladies with independent property living together. Yeah, that's true. And some relationships are romantic and some weren't, but I believe hers was. And she used this... Um, Tennessee children's home that she had in Memphis, Tennessee, after she'd sort of worked around in Texas and other places. And it was an unlicensed home. And she basically ran a black market adoption scheme there from the 1920s. And she was closed down 
and investigated not actually long before her death. So the, one of the other tragedies in this story, she was never brought to heel for her crimes. I and mean, not only that, but none of the criminal apparatus that supported her corruption was ever brought to justice either. They all retired or died before anything happened. Yes, so there were judges, there were mayors in the local constituency around her that were all complicit in this. And as we know from our discussions about Jonestown and, you know... Um, who was that German horrible person? Eichmann. Yes, sorry. I was thinking of um, <laughs> several other names I could have put there. They were enabled by other people. These people don't operate on their own. And the people that enable them are, in my book, just as bad as they are. So she died of cancer, which isn't a great way to die, but um, that claimed her life just before all the reports and, and evidence of her crimes. Well, let's just hope a few people with Halloween costumes are poking her behind with forks right now. Yeah. I, I hope that, and we hope that for most of the people that we discuss um, here, and uh, definitely compassion for the people whose lives were tragically affected. And so what she did was she, at the time when she became a social worker, so she was born, let's see here, 1891. So she was a social worker in the early 20s or so. And back then, adoption was something, we were discussing this also, adoption wasn't something that was as widely viewed as it would come to be. Now, obviously, adoption is a much different uh, in this modern day and age, and there's not many as many children to be adopted, etc., etc. Um, people are going overseas, people are fostering and then adopting. But back then, it was all very hush-hush. There were closed adoptions, meaning the children couldn't find out about their background. And before this woman came on the scene and sort of normalised adoption, not just in her home state of Tennessee, but across the US, where she trafficked in these children... Um, you know, it was sort of a, um, not, I don't know if you'd use the term taboo, but it wasn't something that people wanted to discuss. Cause I guess you're talking about issues of fertility, womanhood, motherhood. And I don't think a lot of women at the time wanted to discuss the fact that they couldn't have children. And also we were discussing other issues to do with it. Like they wanted blood relatives. They wanted, you know what I mean? So it wasn't as such an open thing. So the one thing that she did do was help, I guess, normalise adoption, which is probably the only decent thing that she did, except her way of adoption was far from normal. There could also at sometimes be uh, rather uh, unpleasant motivations for adoption in the different times too. They could be racially motivated part, part of how, uh, because it's well known now that in Australia, huge amounts of children were often uh, brought here under flimsy pretenses during and after World War Two. And mm -hmm. part of that was uh, the white Australia policy. There were created a huge demand for Anglo-Saxon children to be brought over. And so it was uh, to a lot of uh, corrupt people's uh, benefit to uh, uh, bring Caucasian children um, uh, when their parents may have been um, still able to take care of them in the UK. Yeah, so... Well, that's an interesting thing. I wasn't too aware of that. Um, obviously, there was... And it was a similar um, thing uh, in parts of America too, um, uh, just to do with ideologies of uh, the better people to be brought up with. Mm. So, she, yes, she was definitely... Um, or she was a racist. She didn't deal with any non-white children. Um, and she was an elitist as well because she believed that only people from wealthy, educated backgrounds really deserved children and the people that she was taking, stealing, abducting the children from were often very poor, um, poorly educated people in the area who would come to her under the 
hope that she could help them because she came across the guise of this mother mentor figure who would be able to help poor men and women, especially women that had lost husbands, get medical care for their children. The women gave her the children to take to the hospital under the pretext of getting medical care and then were told that they they had actually died when, in fact, she'd kidnapped them and adopted them out. So that was one of her many um, operations that she had going on. Sometimes she'd just drive in poor neighbourhoods with her nice car and offer a ride. Yeah. So she then she when the demand, because she was charging for all of these, so basically under her... Um, idea is if you have the money to pay me I'll get you a child so the other tragic thing that we'll go through as well is that she didn't um yes a lot of the children were adopted by rich families they could also potentially be returned by these rich families as well she did favor the children that suited the sort of adoptive adoptive parents that she trafficked to so one of the most well-known people that did actually procure children from her is of course Joan Crawford who wasn't really known for her mothering skills her two youngest her twins Kathy and Cindy were actually procured from this woman yeah, we, we should mention that because this uh, Georgia Tan was working properly, that didn't, that didn't necessarily mean that the parents she was adopting out to were under the uh, knowledge that they were being obtained this way. Of, of course, they uh, probably could have taken a lot for granted. I think there was a, probably an assumption that most uh, uh, middle-aged women working in child responsibility roles could be trusted with anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the sort of prejudice that you uh, could work to a crook's advantage. But uh, definitely uh, plenty of notable people uh, fell into Georgia Tan's hands. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, as what happens in a lot of, you know, especially back then, there wasn't a paper trail. It's not like it was now where there's like digital paper trails that you can follow, records are archived, you know, even tracking people by their mobile phones, where they are these days, their computer use, their IP address. There was none of, we often forget that. We're like, how could something like this happen where this woman is abducting these children and just selling them off to people? It was a lot easier to fake and destroy that's right. Yeah, documents. And especially if you had, she had judges in her pocket. She had... Um, and her father was a judge. And her father was a judge. Uh, and it, at that time, if you had the right influence and intelligence and know-how, there was a heck of a lot you could get away with as long as you were being helped. And she was helped by um, judges and she was helped by the mayors of certain um, municipalities that she would traffic in. Uh, and then initially the operation started in Tennessee in around the Memphis area and then she started trafficking the children out to the New York area California so there were other uh, not only Joan Crawford but June Allison and her husband also had a child um, uh, and there were probably other people but especially wealthy families because they could pay the most as well let's face it so she would put all sorts of ads in all different sorts of papers so she sort of normalized adoption um, to a degree where it became less taboo and, hey, you can't have a child. Um, there was even one case I read about where, you know, a wealthy person's grandchild had died in childbirth, his uh, son or da- uh, daughter's child, and he literally went to her the next day and just got a, a child to replace it just like that, and the daughter didn't even know. These days you can't even get a dog that easily. No. Like most breeders, if you say, my uh, kid's dog just died, I want a replacement, they'll be like, no, we have to do some checks on you first. You 
kind of do that. Yeah, yeah. Which if, is, if they're yeah. honest. Yeah, if they're honest, yeah. So she was uh, – Georgia Tan was born in Philadelphia, Mississippi, and we mentioned that her father, George Clark Tan, uh, was a judge – and her mother was Beulah Yates. So her name is an amalgamation of both of her parents' names. So Beulah, George Tan, and then obviously as her mother's name was Beulah, which is a very old-fashioned name, she became Georgia, which is, you know, one of the female versions of George. So um, Beulah, her mother was a school teacher. So especially when she was born at the time uh, Georgia was born, that was quite rare. And then her father was a rather domineering judge type, and so I guess that's where Bueller inherited that from. I don't think he was particularly, um, you know, the father knows best sort of father who would be there. He was do this, do that. Now, her father, he actually st- got her on this path because he would bring abandoned and neglected children home with him if he was adjudicating over certain court cases. And um, and then he would sort of pass them on to relevant authorities who might be able to, to do something with the child. So she actually saw that through her father. Um, even though he was a cold sort of person himself, he did do that, I guess. So she, um, being very independent and not wanting to go the marriage route, we discussed that she was in a Boston marriage. So she was um, in a I, they believe it was a gay relationship with a woman and that's fine. That's, but obviously not accepted back then. So she attended uh, Martha Washington college in Virginia and she actually graduated with a degree in music. And then she went into social work. She studied at Columbia university for New York for two summers. So this is in a day where women were not expected to go off and get these university. It was still at a time when women were considered intellectually inferior to men. So the fact that she did that, I mean, that's an accomplishment, but yeah, pretty much. And pretty much what accomplishments you did have were sort of dependent on often having that wealthy background to sort of support you. Mm. So she did that. She got into sort of social work and decided that music wasn't for her. Then she decided she wanted to be a lawyer, potentially a judge as her father was. And under his, so there's a couple of different ways you can study law. The most common way now is to go to university and intern and all the rest of it. And that is in the US, but you can also kind of do like a practicing law study where you train with a lawyer. That's not as common now. I think actually Kim Kardashian, that's how she's studying law. She's actually doing on the job training and then does her exams that way rather than being in uni doing the theory and then going out and getting experience. Although I'm sure it's no problem for her to get tuition for Harvard. (laughs) Yeah, it's just, it's more of a on-the-job training, but I think I don't, it's not really the norm. Most people go to university, Mm. but back in, in these days, this is how you train to be a lawyer. So she read law with her father and then she, and then you've got still got to go on and pass the the bar and and all the tests and everything, but you're sort of doing on the job training as opposed to sitting in a classroom training and then doing some on the job. So obviously she didn't want to get married. She didn't want to have children and even though she was a qualified lawyer, her father stepped in and said, no, I don't, you're not doing that. And so what she had studied in social work along with teaching and a few, nursing were really the only professions that women could get into. And that's exactly what she did. So 
um, she did do one of her first stints as a social worker, which was a very new profession, I guess, at the time. She briefly worked in Texas and then she came back over to Tennessee and then she started working at the Mississippi Children's Home Society, working as a director there. Um, she herself in 1922 adopted an infant called June. She wasn't particularly motherly, and I believe that June grew up with being cared for by other people. Um, and then she took up with this this woman, and they became a couple. Uh, and then she moved to Memphis. This was in uh, 1924, and her and these people that she'd sort of got it, her adopted daughter, the woman that she was living with, and the woman's son, they all came along. And... Uh, they had their Boston marriage, and then she started uh, as the executive secretary at the Shelby County branch of the Tennessee Children's Home Society, where this horror starts. So basically, she used this place uh, once she figured out she could make money. I mean, they said that profit was a driver for her, which it, you know, greed, profit, it is in a lot of these cases. Um, well, she reminds me very strongly of Al Capone, where. Mm. Uh, she caught on to this uh, opportunity for high profits and uh, sort of in a spiralling cycle used it to buy influence to increase uh, her buying power and uh, get more profit that way. Yeah, so in Tennessee uh, they had, because they were aware that children could be potentially sold, the organisations and the agencies that placed children were only play, pa, uh, paid for their sort of general service that they provided, not for the children themselves, obviously, because that's buying children. So when she figured out she could go over state lines and sell to wealthy clientele, she could charge a lot of money to place a child with a family that wanted one. And that's how she made her money. So I guess there were still some sort of checks and balances on her in Tennessee, but outside of state lines, because when we talk about Joan Crawford, um, her two eldest children, so obviously Christina, who's probably her most famous child because one, she was an actress and two, because she wrote that famous book, Mommy Dearest, but Christina and her brother, Chris, they were adopted through another agency. And yes, because Joan was Joan Crawford, she was able to do it, even though she wasn't sort of in a stable relationship or married, but to adopt, she had to go outside of California to get the twins. So that's why she ended up uh, utilising their services. So um, Beulah, Georgia, wasn't going to care too much that she wasn't married or anything. And then the um, so funnily enough, in that case, the twins said that she wasn't that bad to them. It was more Christine, Christina, and Christopher. Um, that said that she was horrible. So uh, I think she was just an unavailable person and probably shouldn't have been a mother anyway. But, um, yeah, so... It's a similar story with um, comparing um, Elton John's experience with his father and his uh, much younger brothers. Yeah, well, that's that's right, you know. Yeah, I mean, I've, I, I haven't read, like, any of Elton's biographies or anything like that, but just through seeing... I don't think his father was supposed to have been cruel, just, like, very distant and, like, not huggy type, which is, you know, everyone was like that back then. Yeah, but I, I saw portrayed in uh, Rocket Man that he was to the younger children, and when Reginald, a.k.a. Elton, a.k.a. Elton, would come over... Uh, you know, he'd just be, I don't know whether it was that he thought Elton was gay or what the situation there was, but he wasn't out at that time. I'm not sure I haven't read enough peer-reviewed sources to give an opinion on that matter. Yeah. <laughs> but there was obviously something between the two of them and Elton did feel very abandoned. So in relation to what we're talking about with um, Joan Crawford and her children, yeah, 
I mean, the twins had a different view of her. It could have just been that she was also under more scrutiny as well uh, and also getting older. Um, obviously, when she had Christina and Chris, she was a bit younger, so maybe she was a bit full on. So eventually, as time went on, you know, uh, Georgia built up, she had properties, she was driven around town in a limousine, she was making a heck of a lot of money out of this and she would adopt to the highest bidder. So there were no checks on who was adopting, there was no checks on, I mean, fine, if you're with a wealthy traditional family, it doesn't mean you were necessarily treated particularly well, but no background checks on, you know, other people that she'd adopt to. Some children were given out to, you know, labour farms and then the children in her care that maybe were not the optimum children to be adopted, they were malnourished, they were not treated right, um, like uh, things like diarrhoea, lots of... um, uh, you know, um, what's the term I'm looking for? We always say gastro, gastrointestinal issues uh, were happening with the children. They were becoming very dehydrated and small children, you know, obviously aren't the same as adults and it's bad enough when an adult becomes dehydrated, but they were dying from this. So hundreds... You can probably be sure they weren't getting all their vaccinations either. No, that's right. And when a doctor would come in and see the children, you know, Georgia and her team of nurses, if you could call them that, were recommended to treat the children and take them to hospital, especially the newborns that she was procuring because they had a rule back then that the baby needed to be five pounds to leave the hospital so that they were given the best chance in life. And she didn't care. She just took the babies away. And if they didn't thrive and survive, then they mysteriously died and went missing. So lots of children were abused, um, were abused to the point where, uh, it, they, you know, they died from, you know, being malnourished or not treated well, um, from diarrhea, things that can be treated even back then. But because the sanitation was so bad where they were living, they had all these um, GI issues like gastrointestinal issues and were just dying from things that could be treated, not to mention things like tuberculosis and all sorts of other situations and she didn't care if it wasn't worth her taking the child in and getting the child looked at she just didn't do it so I mean god what a horrible way to operate so this was all going on in secret the children weren't buried properly a lot of them weren't a lot of them you know so they estimate anywhere from like 500 to 3,000 children I think they just don't they just can't put a put a well they uh, just didn't have the paperwork to corroborate the evidence and it's it's mm. crazy how uh, what you could get away with um, with um, poor documentation back then because there's a like one crazy example a uh, a paedophile who uh, was living in Australia for decades he only died about five years ago mm-hmm. and he worked in a lot of uh, amateur rail societies where he abused a lot of uh, children uh, that mm-hmm. were involved with them. Uh, he'd already been uh, prosecuted for um, uh, molestation in Britain in the early 50s, mm-hmm. but he still managed to get here and work in those societies simply because they misfiled um, <laughs> his, his case form or something. Wow. And so that just shows you how easy it was for, for justice to... And that's just from a general uh, carelessness. Imagine when somebody is actually outwardly uh, going uh, to an effort to cover up their tracks. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, there was even a case here, like back in the 80s and 90s, there was a sitcom here. And the actually the lead guy on the sitcom was actually molesting the children that were playing his kids on the show. Hey, Dan. Yeah, yeah. and um, Robert Hughes. And he was able to go over to the UK and escape justice for years. And it wasn't until they got older, these the, the girl, especially the youngest child on the show, she was able to sort of come forward and say, hey, this happened to me. And then other people corroborated her story. So I believe he has been extradited back here. And um, uh, don't quote me on this, but I think he is now serving uh, time in jail. Whatever he's doing, I'm sure he hasn't got many agents willing to work with no, him. No, but that was just an unbelievable thing. It's like I used to watch that show growing up and, you know, just back to what we're talking about with the situation with Georgia Tan, it's like if you have people, I mean, there would have been people, other adults on that set of that sitcom who would have seen his behaviour, even if they didn't observe the direct interaction, just how weird he was around the kids and did nothing. And we relate it back to what we're talking about here. It's if you've got those enablers, it's very hard when things are sort of so closed off and everyone's bribed and paid off to get anything done. And it's not until people outside of of the situation who aren't financially involved or criminally involved, then you start sort of seeing um, where, you know, where things fall. So as time went on and Georgia needed more children to adopt out interstate, that's as Matt said, then she started abducting children, older children on the way home from school, going into... um, mental facilities where women were about to give birth and just taking the children from them. And the judge that she had on her payroll would just sign off on it. No questions asked. So that was just a failure of everything. And when people did bring things up, they were in, they were in, uh, intimidated by her and the machine behind her and her money because she was becoming quite wealthy. She also spent a lot of her money and wasted it as well. And, um, yeah, and records were destroyed, birth certificates were destroyed. So, you know, it's actually amazing how much she got away with, really. Yeah. And, like, there's no real um, justice in any of this story. Nobody really um, uh, faced the consequences. That's right. So her, we were speaking about the judge. So the judge um, who was involved was Camille Kelly. So another woman. Like, you, you often hear about men doing these trafficking um you know, things and, and, you know, even today going across into different countries, you see things happening in Southeast Asia and the terrible things. And, but the fact that these crimes was committed primarily by a woman, but her biggest enabler was also a woman. It's just unbelievable to me. Well, yeah, you'd, um, uh, there were plenty of stereotypes about um, uh, women being the most suitable for childcare at that time, and I guess they would use that to their advantage. Yeah, well, they obviously did. I mean, um, so basically um, she used her position to, you know, if Georgia went to the court and said the mother's unfit, this and that, even if that wasn't true, this Judge Kelly would just sign off onto it. So, and I think she was quite um, an early... Um, uh, what was it, the first uh, female judge or something of that district or something? So if it weren't for this, she'd have been um, uh, quite a, a pioneer. Yeah, that's right, because she did, the one good thing she did was sort of normalise the concept of adoption being a positive thing because wealthy families were adopting children. It wasn't just something that was hush-hush and passed through families. Um, I suppose, you know, back then, you know, if you weren't blood related to someone, they weren't your concern sort of thing. And this sort of, which was good because children, 
taking children out of a bad situation and putting them into a better one, especially with a family that can't have children, is a great thing to do as long as it you know works for all the different parties. And that's not what Georgia. I mean, there was even you know um, Georgia's attorney, a guy called Abe Waldauer. Pardon me if I haven't pronounced it right said that certain couples could just take ownership of the child for a year and if it wasn't the child wasn't to their specifications, they could just return the child. I mean, can you imagine what that would do to a, a, a young child? It's bad enough when your you know, natural parents aren't treating you, oh, we didn't want you and this and that. But imagine being adopted and you think you've got a home and then being kicked out because you weren't, you know. Like you'd be shunned for doing that to a dog. That's right, and people, which is good. Um, it's, it's definitely good. So yeah, unfortunately as time went on, so this went over the course of two, three decades, um, you know, the children that were kept in her care that couldn't be adopted out, they were neglected, they were physically abused, even in cases sexually abused and murder just through neglect and sometimes willing murder because if the children was abused and they had an injury from that, it's not like Georgia and her cohorts were going to take them to the doctor. So um, this went on and on. She was raking in money from all around the country. The people that worked for her were an all-female staff called nurses, although I doubt they had the... But they were not qualified nurses, and a lot of people were dependent on her for living conditions. So they just kind of worked there in exchange for, for, you know, board, essentially. And they used to try and sedate the children and, um, and as we sort of confirmed before, the ones that they didn't like or didn't think that they could place or sell were just left to die. So either of just general illnesses or malnutrition. So it's just unbelievable. So some of the children actually were officially buried, but most of them were just dumped different places. And then there were people that um, saw evidence that the, the children were being burned in the backyard and stuff, which is horrible stuff. So, um, so we're going to get now definitely 500 deaths, but a lot of people think it's into the thousands, especially with all the illnesses and stuff that were caused. In fact, Matt and I were discussing this before. At the time of her evil reign, Memphis had the highest mortality rate for infants in, I think, continental US. And that's actually people started going, well, hang on a minute, what's going on here? You know, I mean, you know, all of a sudden, ever since you came into town, the mortality rates of children have just gone right off the... <laughs> right off the docket so what's going on here so finally um yes but funnily enough back then black market adoptions weren't illegal they were just frowned on so I suppose that loophole in the law what do you think about that 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 enabled her to to keep on with her dastardly deeds so to speak I suppose behind every law of welfare is um the realization that somebody will do to the contrary I mean it's like when uh, looking at why uh, burglars or, uh, or bank robbers uh, can get a dealt a harsher prison sentence than a, a rapist. They, it's because they, well, you assume that it's because beforehand there's an assumption that there's a, a, something moral that holds back a person from doing uh, these unspeakable acts. But, mm. and, but apparently there are those that just uh, have no conscience. That's right. So the good thing is, is, as we started getting further into history, she's getting older, this scam's been going on for a while. Once she lost some of the people, her cronies that she had in place, 
some of the mayors, some of the judges, some of the um, court cases started getting assigned to judges that had no affiliation with her and that she couldn't blackmail uh, with the various things that she knew about what they were up to. And that's when things actually started changing. So in 1950, uh, Tennessee had a new governor, Gordon Browning, and he started from the social workers, the new social workers, because obviously by that point it was more of a profession for people to be and not just something to do because um, you didn't want to get married. Uh, professional social workers were noticing the condition of the children, people making claims that their children had been taken from them and this time them being investigated. I get, And I guess like 1950 is a lot different to the late 20s. There's a bit more record keeping. There's a bit more technology. Children can be looked after in hospital. The birth rates, the you know infant mortality probably just went down but just by the fact that they had more care for children and for mothers, like with things like sepsis and, and all the rest of it. So these social workers were seeing what was going on in the area that she lived in uh, and then the governor decided to do, um, and and also he was receiving reports that the agency were actually selling children across state lines and for for um, for profit. So they got a district attorney involved into it, and also a public welfare commissioner. And uh, she was accused of receiving more than a million dollars in profits, and back then that was big big dough for what she was doing. Well, you can conservatively say inflation is about double every 10 years. It's, yeah. a, it's a rough estimate, but um, still it gives you a scope of how much she'd have made. That's right. So basically that year she was on her final legs anyway because she um, was suffering from uterine cancer, which is something that um, there are treatments for now, but back then not so much, especially if, you you know, the examinations and stuff and, and MRIs and um, all sorts of things aren't, as it aren't, obviously were not available back then. So she, just as these investigations and a report was about to be released, she died a few days before that. So while she didn't ultimately escape with her life, she escaped from justice in this world anyway, sadly. Um, and so did that judge as well, Camille. She, um, By the time they started investigating her, she also had passed away and resigned and passed away as well. So, I mean, gosh, what's the aftermath of all this? I mean, gee, so she's estimated to have stolen 5,000 children and uh, God knows how many died in her care, well, well over 500 for sure. And um, I guess the state wanting to just put a moratorium on the whole thing, just declared all of the adoptions that she was involved with legal and then they just went on from there because how, how are they going to... So probably the most famous person who, uh, being a wrestling fan, I didn't realise that Ric Flair, um, the wrestler, who's, you know, if, and if you're into WWE or F or whatever... Um, he, um, WCW, all the big wrestling conferences, even though he's sort of an elderly person now for a wrestler, he's well into his 60s, if not 70s, I think, but he's still out and about there flamboyant. He was actually one of the children that was adopted in this scheme. So that would that would have been something for him very hard to sort of overcome. So mm. I was I didn't realise, I didn't realise about that. So... Well, I, we only came across this uh, whole story by accident just as a result of our other podcast because uh, we did our review on Joan Crawford and uh, we found out where she adopted um, some of her children. Well, that's right. And look, I guess a little bit like the Titanic, in the wake of a disaster, at least some good things happened. So eventually as time went on, um, 
you know, she would create false birth certificates for the children that she was adopting out. So it just resulted that eventually in the different areas of the US, they started standardizing how adoptions would take place. Um, in most countries, they do have open adoptions where the children can easily find out about their family if they so wish. Whereas back in her day and in the US, it's still common practice for the adoptions to be closed, meaning that the children don't have access to their original birth certificate or much, if any, information about their birth family unless their birth family reaches out to them. Um, so other things happened like in the late 70s, you know, there were different different legislation um, enabling siblings to find each other. So I suppose the good thing was once they saw the horrors of what had happened, just making things a bit easier for adopted children, one, to be placed in with checks and balances against who they were being placed with and also that the children could potentially find out about their adoptive parents. So, you know, it's um, we were reading the stat that like in the Boston area before Georgia got involved with adoptions in Tennessee, they would only place like five children a year and she was placing at her in her heyday hundreds of children a year uh, into different adoption homes. So, um, yeah, I mean, there is now a Tennessee children's home, which has fortunately has nothing to do with the one that she was involved with. Yeah, that's one place that would need a lot of rebranding. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, you know, what are the issues around and how are these people able to do it? Well, they're able to do it when, they're, when they have um, people helping them out. And essentially, with a lot of these very sad stories, when you have a bunch of enablers, especially people that supposedly work in the government and supposedly work in law, when you have them on your side, I mean, it's just unbelievable how much money corrupts. But I think just from reading about her background, I don't know whether she wanted to live more as a man or what she wanted to do, but she wanted power, she wanted influence. And because she wasn't able to practice as a lawyer. I mean, maybe if she'd been a ruthless lawyer, instead she would have taken all of her aggression out on that um, rather than taking children away from families. But um, she definitely let the, the greed and the profit go to her head and also her mistaken belief that taking children from poor families and giving them to rich families would make them naturally better off in life. And that was not all the case. And I guess uh, the Crawford children are um, perhaps an example of that. Well, I'm sure she deluded herself into thinking she was doing some sort of philanthropic work. Adolf Eichmann thought he was giving people a nice life in a communal ghetto. So Yeah, that's it. And a friend of mine is um, changing careers and going into counselling. And one thing he said uh, to me a few weeks ago, um, you know, we were discussing a certain issue. And he said, Rachel, one thing you have to remember is that all of these people in their own way, they justify, and this is just general people coping with problems or falling into bad patterns. And that's the truth even with sociopaths and psychopaths. They you know, if they have any awareness of what they're doing, they justify it saying, oh, it's a good thing I killed that person because they were going to die anyway. Uh, you know, uh, there's always a justification to them in their mind. Well, when I did an acting class, that was the most important thing I learned in that you can never play a person judgmentally and that you can't um, uh, try and create a veneer of evil because every person all, will always believe there is a perfect justification for what they have done. 
Well, that's right. You know, or you, that they at least are, are entitled to feel, be revengeful or work to their own ends or whatever. Yeah, and they do what works for them and gives them that emotional payoff. And obviously, certain people's brains are just not set up right. And anyone that would participate in anything like this, but it was just amazing how many people. Like, I always just wonder how could that um, tragedy at Jonestown have occurred? But it happened because he had enablers who would run the camp with him, especially when he was becoming further and further incapacitated. And that's what I learned from this very tragic case. So um, there were children who went through the process and some of them had great lives. I'm sure that they did. So obviously many of them had horrible ones and our heart goes out to the poor children that suffered and lost their lives at the home with her and her cohorts. Um, but I think importantly enough, some of them were able to to find their birth parents again if they were still alive. So there, there was something good that came out of it. But uh, ultimately, adoption is a great thing as long as all of the parties are aware, everything's above board, and um, and it can be a wonderful thing. But in this case, it, it, it certainly wasn't and played into the stigma of, of the time, motherhood, um, lack of um, ability to have children, all sorts of things. And there's, there was a lot of shame uh, especially back then when a, a woman's primary role was to be a mother and a wife and a home caretaker if you couldn't have children. So, yeah. And it's all well to talk about um, the welfare of children being the responsibility of the, of the family, but sometimes a family isn't there for them. That's exactly right. Well, this one was a really interesting one for us, a very interesting historical case. Now, there are a couple of telly movies. If you go and have a look on YouTube, there's a few uh, telly movies. Uh, Stolen Babies is one, which I'm actually going to watch. I think Mary Tyler Moore's in that one, so I will watch that. Many different uh, true crime podcasts, like um, I listened to a really good one from True Crime Brewery. Uh, they did a, They always have excellent research in their, in their uh, cases, and... Um, uh, that's one of my favourites, but there's actually lots of other. It's a, a really interesting and lots of sort of news articles and stuff when they started opening up the records about this case and people were able to talk about it a bit more. And, there's been a couple yeah. of historical fictions based on the storyline as well. Uh, I think there's been one recent academic book that's come out, but I think there needs to be far more written on this topic, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. And someone actually who was um, commenting on one of the podcasts that I listened to said that there there was lots of situations in Ireland, especially through the Catholic nunneries and churches, um, about what they did. And not only did they take the children away from the women, the women were then forced into working, you know, like slaves for them. So, you well, not, know. Not just in Ireland, a lot of um, similar stuff happened um, in the Abbotsford Convent here. Yes. So even here in Australia, and then there's other issues with the stolen generation of Aboriginal children. So just some, just, just terrible things that still resonate in our society here in Australia and many of these places all around the world. So, you know, it's not the, let's, let's face it, it's not an easygoing thing to sort of uh, look up and research, but very interesting. And for some some children, there was a good outcome. Um, unfortunately, uh, not for many of them. So that was the horrible tale of Beulah George, aka Georgia Tan. And um, and we thank you today, Matt. Is there anything you wanted to say in closing? Or well. Uh we hope you did uh, find this uh, video this uh, video slash podcast interesting. So if you would like to hear more of our um, pr programs in the future and listen to previous ones, please uh, subscribe to our channels and uh, give us a thumbs up or a good review on all our social media platforms on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.
I I think I'm getting more rehearsed at this. I think I, reco- I covered every angle. <laughs> yeah, Matt normally does a lot of our social media, so because I tend to get a bit wound up looking at it. But uh, we do appreciate any feedback, and if you have any suggestions for historical true crime, it's not the only thing we cover. Um, we are planning to do a few Australian ones as well, but we're just waiting for a special co-host to be able to join us for the first one that we want to do. Yes, our resident expert. Yeah. <laughs> So um, we're just waiting for someone to be available to to do that one with us and then we will cover that one. So there will be some Australian cases and we do want to go really all over the world because, you know, obviously America gets a lion's share of the true crime, especially in some terrible things, but they're certainly not the only ones. There's really amazing stories from all over the globe, South America, um, you know, Africa, you know, Asia, everywhere. So, and I'd also be interested to find out, like, how far back can we go? Like, will we find a, a serial killer from ancient, ancient Egypt or something? <laughs> you know what? I'm, I'm sure they exist. De- they definitely were in, you know, Roman society, ancient Greece, you name it. So there's just – but if you have anything that we would find because we're both, you know, lovers of history, etc., um, we'd probably find that really interesting. So we'd appreciate any input and your input into what you thought about the case. But in the meantime, thank you so much, Um I'm, I'm uh, Rachel and, and Matthew's Matthew and thank you for joining us as we viewed A Glimpse of Hell.